Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, and today I am honored to have with me Brian DiSabatino. How are you, sir? Great, BJ. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited. It's it's an honor to have you. And I mean, inspiring people in places, we, we always talk about how we get to interview inspiring people. Most of those people work in places that they've they've inspired and they've been a part of those places. And uh, I'm I'm really excited because Brian is the CEO of Edis Company. He is, uh, which is a regional construction company. By the way, BJ, we're going to start this interview off correctly. That's E D I S. Okay. Oh, we had we had. Thank you for the correction because <laughs> we're MCFA. Audience is very brand sensitive, <laughs> so I just want to establish this very quickly. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, regional this regional construction company in Delaware, but is also involved in development, which we will get into. But Brian, we always start off getting to know you by understanding. You're now the CEO. Where did you start? How did you get into this industry? Uh, and tell us about a little bit about your path. You know, I um, I like to, to tell folks that I, I I'm the luckiest guy in the world because of nepotism. And so let's let's not make any mistakes here. I didn't get here because of my uh, face made for radio or uh, my uh, social skills or my intellect. This is pure nepotism. So. You know, I had the good fortune of being part of a, a family business that started uh, back in 1908 by my great-grandfather and, and his sons, which included my grandfather. They immigrated uh, to the United States from a, a little village on the Adriatic coast called Santomero, Italy, and uh, came over in 1906. The rest of the family came over in 1908, and that's about the time the company started. And so it's been a tradition in our family to build. Uh, from the, the time of my great grandfather building in uh, in Italy and Austria uh, in the 1800s to, to today, so I I um, they held a stone over my head and told me I had to come in here. So here I am. Uh, first job out of school. Oh, first job out of, first job out of school was here. I had a lot of jobs before out of school, but uh, first job out of school was here. And then, did you work your way up through the ranks? Project management, construction management. What what exactly path did you take to the top? We have a pretty long tradition here that continues into today. That you begin your career here at EDIS in the estimating department. Uh, we we really like folks to understand how buildings are built, what they cost, their implications to our customers, and later in your career be able to, it's the first question everybody asks, you know, I want to do this thing, this this widget, this, this widget, this facility, this whatever, and ultimately it leads to cost. So you, you, you've got to have a handle on design, construction, and cost. So we, we, we become well-grounded in cost here. Uh, I love that because some of our development clients, they want they want to build everything for nothing. <laughs> so that's right. So yeah. Everybody, a, a, yeah. a guy that's in construction and development that started in uh, cost estimating is that's a great background. My guess is we move then quickly to schedule because everybody <laughs> wants it for free, for free yesterday. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because you made the correction, E-D-I-S, where did the name yes. come from? 
E is the first letter of, of my great-grandfather's first name, Ernesto. And D-I-S is uh, part of my name, De Sabatino, hence the, the whole nepotism theme. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so you went from cost estimating to... Uh, from cost estimating to project management. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. You know, I'm, I'm 57 now and I've, or, or, I'm 56. I'm about to turn 57, but you know, I'm, I'm actually watching the renovation of my very first projects. Now, uh, the, the next generation of these Sabatinos are in here renovating my projects. That's so I, I got to start in, in, uh, in project management, worked, uh, at, uh, St. Francis hospital and, uh, what's called the Latin American community center and really got a, a taste for how to organize projects. I, um, I, I kind of like people and I like maneuvering through markets. And so I, I moved quickly into business development, marketing and business development. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I learned how to, to meet people and, and acquire work. And uh, from there, I, I, I went to James Madison University and was fascinated by organizational development and strategic planning. And so I asked, I asked kind of for permission from the, the gang here, if they wouldn't mind if I contributed to strategic planning for the organization. And so they gave me a lot of rope and, uh, and I became part of the strategic planning um, function here at EDIS. And who was, who was the nepotistic leader at the time? Ah, so uh, when I first came to work, my, my, uh, older cousins, uh, uh, Dickie and my father and my cousin, Gene, were Gene, Gene was walking out of the company and as I was walking in, but I was really mentored under my two cousins, uh, Andy and Rick. Uh, Andy was the uh, CEO of the company and, and he and Rick both gave me a lot of latitude to grow as both a business developer um, and a strategic planner. But again, I, I really credit the basis of the tutelage the two of them and my dad and, and Dickie gave to me in the area of, of estimating, because uh, being able to envision and discuss a building in three dimensions verbally and the cost and schedule implications and the human implications is something they taught me very, very well. Um, so at that time, I, I, I mean, that's it's great to have one, it's family and, and they, they give you a little bit of latitude to to probably make mistakes and get bumps and bruises oh, yeah. without without getting hung out to dry. But that strategy that you developed uh, helped the company grow to as large as $150 million in revenue. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. What years did that strategic plan start and, and at what point did you reach uh, the pinnacle? Well, I don't think you ever reached the pinnacle. So we, 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 we vacillate back and forth, you know, between 125 and 150. That's kind of the zone we're in. And, and to be, be quite honest, BJ, I don't remember years. Um, I remember more process. It was, it was really getting, beginning to get an old world company plotting forward to understand uh, the, the methodology and the cohesion required to move in unison. Mm -hmm. And so every, every about two or three years, we'd dust that thing off and, and we'd set goals and, you know, we, we studied sort of modern form strategic planning. What are our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? These were, these were terms foreign to the generation that preceded me. My dad, my cousin Dickie, my cousin Gene, when I went in to ask my dad and my cousin uh, Dickie, you know, how do they acquire work? They said, well, the phone rings. Like, <laughs> 
And, and then when the phone rings, we go to lunch with whoever called. And, and that was their, their, their social network was so good that this idea of worrying two, three, five years out w- was beyond comprehension because they didn't think that they could affect their present or their future. And so they just, they just went with the flow. And, you know, some of us came out of a, a little bit more formal education in the area of management. And we thought, no, 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 there's probably a way to proactively position ourselves to be different in the marketplace um, so that we can, you know, we can contribute more to the community. I, in some ways, I miss the old way because you didn't worry as much about the future because oh, yeah. you didn't think you had any impact on it. That's exactly right. I, uh, trust me, I would much rather be, be dealing with three-hour four Manhattan lunches over a <laughs> bowl of ravioli. You know, yeah. The good old days. The good old days. And you've been sitting at uh, the CEO role since when? I don't know. I, I, that's another great question. I, I guess I've been here five, seven years. That's great. Yeah. Still having fun. No, having more fun than I ever have. I mean, this is, this is an amazing place to work. I love it here. I absolutely love it here. Um, talk to me about the town of Whitehall. Um, uh, yeah, we, we like to get into projects. It sounds like that's a pretty interesting project that you're involved in. I, I guess as maybe investor developer and or, or some somehow uh, investor developer constructor. Yeah, I, I like to say it's like my side hustle. Like, <laughs> like about seventeen. Economy. Yeah, no, it, it really, really is because we've had to run this sort of in parallel with our our company because we didn't want it to be a distraction to what we do in our core business, and so it's not. Um, about about seventeen years ago, again, my cousins gave me a lot of rope. I really, I really am grateful for that trust. We were approached by a philanthropic foundation that had a lot of property and they wanted to create value. But it was 2,000 acres, and they realized that they could really mess up that value and their legacy if all of a sudden we had strip shopping centers and tracked housing as, as the plan. And so we, we spent some time researching um, in the country and outside the country, you know, what would contribute to the community the best, get them the most value, and leave a legacy that we'd all be proud of long after we were dead. And so the common denominator that we came up with place uh, we studied great places. We studied great places here in Delaware, like Rehoboth Beach, uh, you know, great places that have been reinvented, like in the Philadelphia uh, suburbs, like Maniunk. We went to places like Charleston, South Carolina. We went out of the country to our hometown in Italy. We went to Guatemala. We, you know, we went all over the country and all over the world to look at this common idea of place because we decided that that there's no monopoly on place and actually our state and most states are devoid of new great places and when you have 2000 acres and the responsibility you better look backwards and say you created a great place so the common denominator that we came up with bj we didn't come up with it look we 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 ripped it off of other people they're way smarter folks than us but the the common denominator that we were seeing in the in the marketplace was uh, human centrism. And it was something that was really is really aligned with our corporate philosophy here at EDIS, that, that the human has to be at the center of whatever this place is. So it had to be, it had to be pedestrian oriented. It had to be environmentally sensitive. It had, it had to be all of the things that we would be proud of, just like in our building business. The architecture had to be rock solid. It had to be really good. It had to be lovely, you know, it had, so, 
uh, we created this place called Whitehall. You know, if you go to whitehallde.com, you know, that's, that's where we are, Whitehall, Delaware, whitehallde.com, you, you know, you can, you can learn a little bit more about it. But um, we took a page out of the early American planning that said it, these places don't have to be car centric. Like BJ, when you go on vacation, like it's inevitable. You come back and you go, oh my God, if I didn't have this job, I'd live there. And, and when you sort of ask yourself why, it's because you went there, you didn't have a car, you flew there, right? So wherever you go, you can't need a car, right? And so you go to these great places like Key West, right? That you can go to a restaurant, go to dinner, go to the beach, go to the hotel and never worry, right? Yeah. So where did we where did we lose that? And we found out that we lost this about 100, 150 years ago when some really bright people thought it would be great to break up the American city. It'd be great to put housing over there, over here, and, 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 and employment over there, and industry over there. And they disaggregated the cities. And then, you know, in the 1950s, after the Second World War, it just accelerated with um, the advent of... Uh, the interstate highway system and the GI Bill. And suddenly by 1960, 70, and 80, we found ourselves in these, these faceless, soulless suburbs that we decided to be, become part of a, a movement to put Humpty Dumpty back together again and create a great place. That is awesome. How, I, because I'm a business development mind, how did you get selected? Was it a relationship or how did you yeah. end up becoming into that partnership? Yeah, it's um, it, it was very relationship and very um, uh, very reputation based. Um, it, when you when you have something that that's fragile, you can really screw up two thousand acres, and you can't put it back together. You can't. Yeah. Once once you know once the built environment is built wrong, you can't fix it. Yep. And sure, I'm sure there's cottage industries that have been repairing the suburbs and repairing the, the urbanity. But really, right. it's hard to fix it once it's broken. So uh, the, the stewards of the trust took our reputation and our promise very seriously that we were going to, to uphold the philosophy uh, that they wanted to see upheld. That's great. I, th I think that's uh, so cool. So you hit on a couple of things that I want to highlight. One is stewardship. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and shouldn't we all be looking at the projects because you can't unbuild these things? We should yeah. be looking at them as stewardship of uh, one taxpayer money when they're public projects, investor money when they're private projects. But really the, the environment that we're building in, because we're people are going to have to live with these buildings and these decisions yeah. for a long time. Uh Good ideas. They weren't your good ideas. You stole them. No. I'm, I'm a believer. Steal relentlessly. And then the, the last thing I want to hit was the first thing you said. This is this is kind of your side hustle because you didn't want to distract the company. And to our entrepreneurial uh, folks out there, I, I think it's important to remain entrepreneurial in our businesses because we always have to be looking at what are the next things, where is innovation coming from, where is innovation going. But it's also important that we not distract the entire organization to the side right. hustle because the side hustle may not pan out. Uh, so yeah. great, great highlights all in that. Um, I want to jump to, you know, you, you've, you're in a pretty, leader, pretty big leadership role in a pretty big company. How many employees? We have 80. So 80 employees. Um, 
throughout your career, any specific leadership challenge or leadership lesson that you uh, want to highlight? Yeah, I, um, you know, in terms of leadership, uh, I think I enjoy what I'm doing now because I had my rear end kicked so many times along the way. You know, I, this, this doesn't come natural to me. You know, I've had to fail several times along the way, dust myself off and get back up. Um, but, you know, having, you know, my, my cousins, Andrew, Adam, and myself, and now my daughter, uh, Jacqueline, is coming into the business. We, we recognize that, that we are the stewards of the legacy of Ernesto. And when you look at the, it that way, you've got to take the long view. And so when you, when you do get your tail kicked, you know, because of mistakes you made or external environmental causes or whatever, you don't really have a choice. You better get back up. Yeah. Because Ernesto and 100 years of investment is counting on you to perpetuate it for another 100 years. And so, you know, the leadership lesson in that is um, the, the serious responsibility as, as entrepreneurs that we have to not just ourselves and our family, because that's important, right? But there's 80 families that, that look uh, inside this door every day and want to make sure that, that I'm, up to the, I'm up to the task, right? And I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can look backwards at 115 years worth of investment and take it lightly. I mean, people worked their tails off to get us to where we are today. I mean, think how many, how many. You know, I know because I, I, I sense it. Like, how many people would just like to open their doors today? Right. right. How many people would just like an opportunity to today? How many people would like ten names in my Rolodex today? Right. Yeah. And so I look at that as an absolute privilege. And I, I better, I better either be ready to be in this game or get out because people would, would, would die for the opportunities that we have. And so I, we take it very seriously here. It's a, I mean, again, you're hitting on stewardship um, and it's stewardship of our employees and their livelihoods yeah. and stewardship of, of your family's legacy. Um, I, I think it's, it is a very serious responsibility. Um, heavy is heavy as the crown, as they say. <laughs> oh no. You know, I look, I, I'm not whining. I know. I know. I, I love it. I absolutely love it here. I'll open this door and there are 80 amazing people on the other side of the store. This is an unbelievable place to work. Yeah. I can't wait to come visit. You're so close. I'm getting to the office. Um, you're involved in a number of nonprofit uh, and, and society yeah. issues. Uh, I don't know which one is is closest to your heart or, or first on your mind, but I I want to hear about uh, the 22 and 22. Yeah, it's uh, if it's not number one, it's it's darn close to the top. So. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine by the name of uh, Captain Brian Kinsella, uh, United States Army, he and uh, two of his uh, John Hopkins ROTC buddies um, retired eventually uh, from their service. And they recognized that there was uh, suicide in their ranks. And sitting on a couch with a cell phone, they, they started reaching out to people and decided they were going to do something about the issue. 
I, I became friends through a, a, another a mutual friend of ours and tangentially witnessed what Brian was doing. I thought it was interesting, Liam. I'm as patriotic as the next guy, wave a flag and, you know, eat hot dogs on 4th of July. And, and then my son uh, decided that he wanted to go to West Point. And um, it was like, oh, wow, you know, I'm not, I don't come from a military family. And again, my, I, I thought I was patriotic by waving the flag and eating the hot dogs. And uh, he ended up uh, going to the Citadel. And, and I'll never forget uh, sitting in a room with parents when they pulled the kids away from us and, and realized that, oh, my gosh, I just dedicated my child to a cause. Hmm. And, and with that came enormous responsibility. But during the journey to get to the Citadel, uh, Jacob, uh, we, we said to each other, you know, we probably need some, some service projects to get your resume wrapped up for West Point. I hooked him up with Brian Kinsella and, and the organization StopSoldiersSuicide.org uh, asked Jacob to run, to create a 5K. We couldn't really wrap our communication brains around how do you, how do you tie a 5K together with suicide and so we created a brand called 22 and 22. And Jacob simply took that 22 and 22 brand to his classmates at St. Mark's High School in Delaware and said, look, all I want you to do is, is run 22 miles in 22 days. It'll give me the opportunity to raise a couple of bucks and tell the story about veteran suicide, 22 a day. Hmm. Well, the, make a long story short, the brand took off. It got notice of uh, folks like Gary Sinise and, and country music singer uh, Charlie Daniels. And, uh, and the next thing you know, um, we had something on our hands. And uh, Jacob went on to the Citadel, and uh, a cousin of mine by the name of Michael Petrillo, Michael uh, said to me, well, you ought to create a music festival based on what you're doing. And so we thought, you know, we'd be the, no, the new uh, uh, Coachella and uh, Firefly. So we created VetFest. Um, and again, if you went to VetFest Delaware, you'd learn more about it. But at VetFest, uh, we, we decided to put the civilian and military world together. And we didn't realize it was kind of for the first time in our community. Frankly, we've, we discovered that the military piece was fragmented as well. The VA wasn't talking to the American Legion, wasn't talking to the VFW, wasn't talking to the Vietnam vets, wasn't talking to the Iraq vets. And so we created a place to not only tell our story about the epidemic of veteran suicide, but a place to bring the civilian and military world together and to allow our Gold Star families and our military families a, a place to, to bond and heal. And so, um, you know, BJ, once, once you, once you see the scourge of veteran suicide, you can't unsee it. Not rarely a week goes by why I'm not touched by, when I'm not touched by a story. You know, a, a parent, uh, a sibling, um, or a battle buddy will pick up the phone and say, you know, you'll, you'll never believe it. You'll never believe it. Johnny, Susie, Bill, Kim, uh, I, I never saw it coming. I never saw it coming. And you've been telling me about this, Brian, for years now and never saw it coming. And so our job is to get in front of that never saw it coming and interrupt that pattern. And uh, so we've, we've got an amazing organization here in Delaware supporting the non national nonprofit Stop Soldier Suicide. That's um, one. I thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I've had far too many classmates, West Point classmates that have yep. uh, committed suicide to 
due to PTSD. And uh, we have a foundation that's committed to supporting that. So I want to get more information. Is Jacob out of the Citadel? Yeah, he's a, he's a first lieutenant now up at Fort Richardson in Alaska, uh, Airborne Infantry. Awesome. Loving it? Loving it. Loving it. Went through his first winter, still loving it. You know, he's jumping, he's jumping out of airplanes in the, in the snow, so he's loving it. Those West Point winters would have prepared him. That Charleston lifestyle, oh, right? you Charleston. get it just in that's, hard, that's hard to leave. Yeah, the only, the only winter they have in Charleston is when the mosquitoes don't come out. <laughs> Uh, jumping here to some rapid fire questions. Favorite quote? Yes, sir. Uh, in, uh, Mother Teresa, uh, be the light you want to see in the world. Oh, I you know, I, I see too, too many people uh, in our society telling other people what to do uh, and delegating back out to the world. You know, I, I think if you want to change the world, you've got to be the light. I, I agree. And I just had a quote from her uh, going into Mother's Day. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Uh, Amen. Mother Teresa is somebody we could all uh, take a few lessons from in leadership. Must read book. It, it, it depends on the topic. I, you know, I, I, I love the Vince Flynn series, the Mitch Rapp series by Vince Flynn. You know, I like to disappear in spy novels. You know, uh, there's a there's a couple you know, business books that, that I love, you know, I love the whole Jim Collins series, you know, the good to great and better. I forget the set, the follow up better to best. I forget the second one, but they were both, they're very, very, very insightful, methodical books about how to think, you know, as I know your audience, you know, for, for salespeople, I, I go back to old school. You know, I love, I think it's Jim McKay swim with the sharks without being eaten alive to, to really do deep dives in, customer intelligence. So whether you're trying to persuade them for selling or just frankly getting to know people on a human level at a deeper level and understanding who they are and not just trying to transact, that was a pretty profound book to, you know, to Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. You know, I, I just, uh, you know, wherever, whatever your religion, whatever your, wherever you are in your life, having a core philosophy that understanding the why, and as a West Point guy, you know, understanding the why behind the command is essential. And it's what I work on every day here. If I can't convey the why, then nothing else matters. I couldn't agree more. Um, some good books. We'll make sure we highlight them all in our uh, in the show notes. Uh, dead or alive, <laughs> if you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? Man, that, that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I'd love to hang out, I, you know, I, I'd love to hang out with Jesus, you know, who wouldn't, right? I don't know what I do all day. Cause you're, you're I, the, I'd be you're the second I, guest in, in a week. Maybe it's cause we're coming off of Easter yeah. that has said, I mean, I'm afraid he'd already know about me. So I, <laughs> he, that, that, that visit might scare me. The, um, I'd love to hang out with my great grandfather. I'd like to know, I'd like to know what that struggle really was like. Um, leaving a country for a country where you don't speak the language, leaving your people, just throwing care to the wind. So I, I'd love to have been on that journey with him. You know, I, because you said that, I would love to know what the hope was in front of them. Because yeah. we go back to Italy to, to visit and love it. and But what was drawing him to America? 
You know, there's a life comes full circle with that story. You know, when I went to Italy, I met with a, a family who said, you know, Brian, right immediately after World War II, your grandfather came to this village. And we never thought after what we had been to that any American would ever come here without a gun. Hmm. You know, we, we just we were we just thought that we had lost all of our American friends. And your your grandfather came pulling up in this big Cadillac <laughs> Uh, handing dollar bills out to all the all the kids, you know, and candy, you know, and just, you know, just thought that that was the greatest cowboy event ever. <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, yeah, that that story came full circle. But the, the third person that I think I'd, I'd really like to hang out with, because I, I love this country, I, I love what it did for my family. I, I'd love to, I'd love to be with George Washington uh, on the hill above Boston. Um, uh, or or in Valley Forge when he wasn't supposed to make it. Yeah. Or sneaking across the Delaware. Well, at least getting the news of everybody sneaking across the Delaware. Right. So, so you know, I, the, those principal moments, whether it's George Washington or any of the, fa- the, the founders of the country, where again, they just threw care to the wind. The death was, was a, an inevitable consequence of their doing for a greater cause steeped in religion and philosophy. Uh, I, I would have loved, loved to have been there. I agree. I, when I was interviewed on the same podcast, I said George Washington, and and you know you talk about Valley Forge. Did you say my grandfather too? He, him almost being, uh, you know, killed while he's praying in the woods. Yeah, right. Um, it, it comes to mind, and then the the second piece that stands out to me is any you know everybody wanted him to be king. Right. He was that oh, yeah. was that compelling of a leader that everybody wanted him to be king. And he had his ego checked enough and knew what, you know, was so grounded in the principles they were fighting for that he said, no, no, no. So grounded. No, no, no. So well said, BJ. So well said. So grounded. Uh, That's hard. So hard. Um, so much to admire in, in him. Uh, so I, I wish... Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, legacy. You you talked about your grand your your great grandfather's legacy. What do you yeah. want your legacy to be? You know, I I I I, I you know that's a great question because I don't I don't necessarily live for legacy. I um I I want to know that what I did mattered. Yeah. And that perhaps I set balls in motion. You know, here we are talking about George Washington, right? Right? And really, he, he had no idea what, it's, it's a weird statement to say he didn't know what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. But I don't think you could ever have imagined the consequence of what he was doing. Yeah. And, you know, he started, he was one guy. <clears throat> He started a started a ball rolling. I, you know, I, I hope I hope that some somehow I'm moving a ball that I don't even know that I'm moving right now, and it has an amazing consequence down the road. That's awesome. Butterfly effect. Uh, yep. Who in our industry inspires you? It's a great question. You know, I'll, I'll go back to that whole Whitehall thing yeah. that that we're doing. You know, I there's a there's an architect out of Miami by the name of Andres Duani. And uh, Andreas um, is sort of a counterculture architect, and every 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 idea that he co- that, that he has that, that begins to become mainstream, he'll break it again, <laughs> and then he'll break it again, 
I mean, he's the, I don't want to say he's the antithesis of the um, American Planning Association, but he's a revolutionary within it. I love it. Um, you know, he created, he with others, created what's called the Congress of New Urbanism. And really, they, they, they keep breaking the egg. Every time, you know, an idea becomes mainstream, they'll break it again. And I think that, that, that willingness to break things and, and suggest that any time that something becomes so bureaucratic, so mainstream, that just intuitively that we know that it can't be right, break it again. Uh, I, think, I think our industry could benefit from that level of, of uh, ego breaking and innovation every single day. Uh, you know, when I look back at our history as a company, I, I believe that we are nimble, bright, energetic and innovative because Ernesto was, he broke with the cause. He left, he left the country, right? And, and you can trace our, our family, well, no, our business history. And we pivot and pivot and pivot and pivot and pivot. Because I think that if we knew that we stayed in a straight line, we'd be dead. And, and I, I take a lot away from Andreas's willingness to just keep breaking the norm. Yeah. Because uh, in order for us to get back to great community through architecture and building, we have got to break the paradigms that were created over the last 150 years. So I, I a little off script because I think you know we talk about entrepreneurial public agents, um, and yeah. that to me, you know, it's it's this stewardship requires innovation, right? You're a steward mm -hmm. of um, you know your family's legacy and what Ernesto started. But you also have to continue to take risks and balancing those two things is is very difficult because, you know, it, it's easy to stay with the tried and true principles until they punch you in the face. Uh, how do you balance that? The risk taking or risk management to continue to innovate while allowing your company to, to operate? Well, you have to go in with a with a, a, a complete comfort to know that what you'll end up with has nothing to do with where you started. Like, like you just have to trust the process that if you, if you put enough smart people together and that there's a market, um, that the right outcome will come. Sometimes the right outcome is failure. So sometimes that is the right outcome and you just have to be okay with that. Yeah. But, but more times than not, it's a nuanced success. And then every time you get to that nuance, you, you, you start again. And it's never a straight line. You know, when, when we started as a company, we never, we were stonemasons. We, we dug holes and built manholes for the utility company. We thought that was our future, right? And, and, and here we are, you know, having put billions upon billions of buildings in place. My great grandfather, he was building manholes for God's sakes. <laughs> But, but I think he trusted the process that if he built a good manhole, then maybe he'd build a good exterior and then build a good building that he'd never see. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, any closing comments? The time is yours. The audience is yours. Young and old, what do you want to tell our industry? You know, I, you know I, I, I am really excited. There's a new generation of people entering our, our industry with a new, new sense of courage that I, I, I really embrace. You know, one of, the, one of the 
sort of public policy movements of the day is around the topic of equity. You know, and I'd like to leave your listeners with a, a, an understanding that that the world is changing. And this is an exciting time for everybody to get into this business. And, and you know, I, I believe, you know, race and gender have been subdued in our industry for way too long. And, you know, we came a long way in gender, you know, it, it just even in my time. And I, I believe that the, the time is now uh, to address the issue of race disparity in our industry. And, I, I, and it's going to take a lot of proactivity um, from captains in the industry to recognize that, that folks like us came through usually a European tradition where great-grandfathers and grandfathers and fathers and sons, and then the sons and daughters finally, right? That tradition began. Mm -hmm. the, the African-American tradition in this country is very different. And if we don't recognize it as being different, we're leaving out an entire, entire talent pool that can contribute greatly. And so I'm really excited to see where this industry is headed, to embrace, to embrace a community that, that was historically disenfranchised because they didn't share the same tradition. And I'm really grateful to see over the last you know, 30, 35 years of my career that the gender barriers are breaking down. So a lot of great promise in this industry and a lot of great energy. I, I agree with you. Uh, and, and we have so much opportunity in front of us. I mean, every every article is around uh, shortages in the talent pool and the labor pool. Uh, and I think that there's such a career path to be had through experiences yeah. from superintendent to, to project manager yep. to entrepreneur starting your own construction company. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. We, I, I, so I hope, you know, in my closing here, that there's some, you know, young men and, and women uh, of, of every, you know, every race and nationality and, and background. And, you know, if you can remember that you don't have to start with a lot, you just have, you, you just have to love building what matters. And if, if you start with that core philosophy, um, great things can happen. Brian Sabatino, thank you so much for your time on the show. We uh, would love having you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, PJ. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iPod, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com, to check out our projects and see what jobs are open with us. And we... Uh, we favor the entrepreneurial. So if you don't see a job description that you think fits you, but you want to come join us, uh, shoot us an email uh, or catch me on LinkedIn at BJ Kramer. Thanks so much. Have a great week and a great weekend.